Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by Sam Sternberg, Customer Programs Lead at Skyflow, and we'll be talking about security and privacy at scale. Sam, welcome to the show. Sean, it's an honor to be here. Happy to be your guest. Yeah, thanks for being here and for our first ever video version of Partially Redacted, so that's exciting. Lucky me. <laughs> <laughs> so I know a, a little bit about your background. Uh, you've worked for you know uh, several you know fairly large companies, you know companies like Meta, where you were TPM, and you were at Accenture before that. So we're going to get into a bunch of your sort of you know background and, and history with working with you know really large organizations, but. Before we get there, let's start with some basics. You know, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, sure. So um, just to start from from the beginning, um, you know, I did my undergrad at George Washington University in D.C., uh, studied uh, computer science for both bachelor's and master's. Uh, I actually focused on computer security. Um, I did my senior project actually on uh, it was something I, I invented called the universal mailing address system. And it was a uh, mail privacy and confidentiality system for the U.S. Post Office. I actually pitched this on a random webinar that I found online. Still waiting for the callback, but, um, you know, uh, privacy-minded from, from the jump. Uh, after college, I actually worked for the federal government. I was a systems engineer, active directory administrator. I worked on, um, you know, physical server to virtual server migrations kind of a, a, a five-tool role, role there. Um, and then, as you mentioned, I, I jumped into the consulting world uh, with Accenture. I was there for over seven years, um, working within the uh, identity and access management security space. Um, I then went to Meta, and now I'm here at Skyflow, uh, uh, you know, leading our customer programs team in the Americas and also focusing on, you know, enterprise strategic uh, implementations and making sure that that they go well with all of the complexities that come with the the enterprise world. So I've been a customer, I've been a consultant, and now I'm in the the product space. Uh, and I've 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 seen uh, all facets of of how implementations can go go well and and some not so well. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, yeah. I think you you have the right uh, background both for a startup and for this conversation. You know, you have a sort of wide breadth of uh, experience and expertise that uh, we, you know we can tap into and of course is super helpful at any you know company that's trying to be a, like a, a scale up uh, because you're going to wear a lot of hats essentially yeah totally and and you can't forget the startup hat as you get bigger into the enterprise world there are a lot of things that you need to um, aim for even if idealistically uh, within the bigger enterprise space that um, can pay back uh, uh, can have benefits. So, you know, we're talking about large enterprise and throughout you know, the, the history of the show, we, we've covered a lot of different topics. We never really kind of dove specifically into these like sort of gigantic companies and what things look like from, you know, purely from their perspective, because things just get really, really complicated, uh, both like operationally, because there's a lot of, you know, teams involved. And then also from a technical side of just like, you know, the infrastructure is complicated. So can you kind of like paint a picture for what infrastructure at one of these gigantic companies might look like? Like how many sort of like, you know, databases, servers, like people involved are, are we talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, at any given, you know, on any given program, there could be hundreds of people involved, maybe thousands, thousands or tens of thousands of databases or servers, but it's less the, the quantity and more 
you know, the, the, the cross-functional nature of the folks involved, the um, distributed systems that are involved, other projects that are going on while your priority number one project, you know, every project is priority number one, is going along on in parallel, right? So if we think about um, a, a data security program, that could be going on alongside a cloud migration you know, program. Is the data security program competing with the cloud migration program? Is there a new ERP system being, you know, rolled out at the same time? Um, when you get to the scale of large enterprises where you have multiple lines of business that actually have, um, you know, to some extent, duplicate functions, some each with their own CISOs even, and you have the hub and spoke model of a security organization and then different lines of business, things really need to be, um, uh, uh, organize well from the start because of the complexity involved across, you know, those thousands of, of servers and databases and, and hundreds of people. Yeah. And then you're going to also have like a ton of vendors that you're working with from like, you know, third-party services. Like, it's not like you're just going to have Salesforce running. You're going to have probably like, you could have thousands of essentially applications that need to be, you know, vetted from a security perspective, probably connected into um, potentially your customer data the you know, just like even starting to think about that from like a privacy and security perspective, it gets a little scary just to, to even start to wrap your head around it. Totally. You, you know, you've got vendors that also um, do the same things in the security space outside of their actual, you know, what, what you're hiring the vendor for. Right. So if, if I put on my customer hat, I've got a, you know, particular vendor A that has all this great governance stuff, you know, that they can offer to lock down the data that lives within their, their world. And somewhere else, that vendor A could be selling elsewhere within the enterprise. Could be the same vendor, right? And different stakeholders are applying different, different governance rules elsewhere within the business. Oh, and then by the way, you have your central security organization that might have something like a, a sale point, which is intended to orchestrate the governance across all of these applications. So should you be configuring, you know, data security at each endpoint? Should you do it only centrally? How can you shift left? These are all, um, you know, questions that, that, you know, folks should be asking when considering any project, especially one that takes all of your customer data and does analytics on it or, or you know, any exposure to, to privacy and, and risk in that sense. Yeah, and a lot of these companies are, you know, they aren't necessarily born in the cloud. They might have been around for a long time as well. So they're probably running, you know, potentially they're running on-prem or hybrid cloud system as well, trying to, you know, maybe they're trying to modernize and migrate. You mentioned migration to the cloud earlier. Um, that, that further adds to the complexity and, you know, just thinking from like a governance standpoint, all the places that you might need to control uh, access to information, both from in like in a hybrid cloud system. Like, what are some of the things that you've seen in terms of those setups that are uh, both, I guess, like a little bit scary, and then also like power teams or companies thinking about actually managing that today? Yeah. So you know, some of the the risks involved, and some of them are scary. Are you know, the benefits of the cloud are you know, cost optimization. You don't have to run your own data center anymore. Um, a lot of different tools and even security functionality that the, you know, AWSs of the world and the GCPs and Azure's can provide you for that space. It's very attractive, but um, the how you get to the cloud is often, you know, an, an afterthought um, after the, the deal has been inked and it's like, okay, get to the cloud, right? So 
What's scary for me is when you're in a hybrid cloud setup, when you're fully on-prem, you've got a set of controls, right? Those controls have been there since, you know, the beginning of on-prem data centers. When you take your first step into the cloud and start putting customer data there, now you've got those sets of controls that need to be extended to a cloud world. Oftentimes that can slow down a project. Um, and, and my view on this is, is you can think about it um, as a data foundation set of policies. And if you really think about the cloud as an application, that is an application that you can uh, have your data flow into and securing it at the data level, at the foundation actually is kind of allows you to be as left as possible so that what's flowing through into that new cloud world could be secured. Yeah, I would think as well, like in the hybrid world, you almost end up having to, like it's a different skill set in terms, like from a security perspective, right? Like you, you might need somebody that is a, uh, has more knowledge and uh, like specialized knowledge around AWS or GCP or like wherever you're running, or even if you're, you're running multi-cloud, then, then you need that knowledge plus whatever you did in the on-prem world as well. So you, you kind of have, you're living in like, you know, a foot in one part of the world and a foot in another part of the world and trying to maintain consistency across both of those, plus the skill sets needed and required to actually manage those and protect them and lock everything down. Totally. There are, there are you know, new uh, companies founded on, you know, solving for that risk and complexity, right? Like um, cloud management tools that support multi-cloud so that you're looking at one interface you know, behind which you see your Azure stuff, you see your GCP stuff, you see your AWS stuff. Um, Multi-cloud is only recently being um, scaled up in the enterprise space. A lot of enterprise companies don't want to put all of their, you know, um, eggs in one basket, even if it's a huge global cloud basket. So that's maybe something that's that's coming, um, you know, in the future for uh, uh, for large enterprises. And and again. Those same people and that those same security controls need to then extend into that multi-cloud world. There's a lot to to solve for there. What do you see as some of the like initial workloads that like large enterprises are moving to the cloud as sort of their the first step to maybe uh, running a more modern system? Yeah. So I mean, no company will put customer data into the cloud without having some kind of you know assurance that it's secure. Right. So if you're a large enterprise that um, maybe is dabbling in the cloud or you have some non-critical workloads in the cloud, oftentimes that's where you start. You start with something that's, um, you know, not to say not vital, but uh, if something were to go wrong, you you have you've only dipped your toe in so you can, you know, kind of uh, correct as you go. So I, I would say the first step is is to, you know, get started in the cloud, figure out what either application set of applications you can migrate there. When you think about moving from on-prem data warehouses to something like a snowflake, now you're talking about um, cloud services that are themselves built on top of um, the cloud. And, and that could be a, um, I would say, a shortcut out of managing your own cloud versus getting the services that you need out of the cloud. That's another, another space that's growing. Yeah. I would think so. You mentioned like like Snowflake there. So now, especially with this, all the hype around generative AI and LLMs, there's probably a lot of companies that are trying to uh, you know make investments there. They want to move some of their data over to 
Databricks, Snowflake, you know, whatever it is, essentially whatever warehouse lake um, uh, uh, um, product that they, they feel like using. How do you see these organizations sort of ensuring, you know, confidentiality, integrity, availability of these types of environments as they're sort of shifting? Because they, they probably want to base some of the training of whatever their investment is in Gen AI on some of their you know customer data or private information. So how are they sort of thinking about navigating that, or what are you seeing, or what have you seen before? Absolutely. I mean, compute is cheap, storage is is cheap now. So so there are no there's no more built in friction to um, moving all of your data, every customer, and everything you know about your customer into this one application so that you can run all the analytics on it. Right. So uh, I, I would say you need to protect the data where it is, right? I think in, um, you know, past times where there was some friction to actually accomplishing some of this and, and compute was a little bit more expensive, you could have uh, specific projects on on use cases where you want to actually shift data over. But with the LLM space and with apps like Snowflake who can do this at scale and Databricks, um, you really need to secure the data first in a way that is interoperable with these systems. Right, so when we start to think about the cloud journey and all of these cloud, uh, all these applications living in the cloud, um, you need something that probably is already in the cloud. You need something that um, you know is API based, since most of these uh, applications are themselves API based and can speak that language. And then, of course, there are open standards for compliance controls that already exist from the on-prem world. When we talk about the digital identity world, things like SAML and OpenID Connect for authenticating and making sure that you can map your users into those spaces. If you secure all of your data and put it in Snowflake, but all of your company has access to all of that data because you really didn't string up your, your roles right, then you know, is it really secure? So there are, there are a lot of things to, to consider as you're going on, on that journey. You mentioned compliance there. So in terms of compliance, like what are some of the main regulatory frameworks that large enterprises are, you know, must navigate or what is sort of, you know, keeps them up at night in terms of uh, compliance and how do these impact their data management strategies? Totally. I mean, you've got, you know, the EU's GDPR, you have now specific, you know, states and countries making regulations. California has CCPA, India has DPDP, Saudi Arabia, Australia. Um, these these data regulation um, uh, uh, policy frameworks are, only getting more numerous, right? So solving for one at a time, you know, isn't feasible anymore. Um, in fact, you know, the space for a a service in and of itself to to handle that for you, the way that you know old school databases offered encryption at rest, right? There are services now that can offer data residency, you know, out of the box that can offer this in a way that actually um, allows you to. Um, uh, avoid replicating your entire infra infrastructure stack for the next regulation that comes in. If you're a large multinational corporation and you have customers everywhere, the EU needs you to keep their data in the EU, right? There are restrictions in California. It, it, you need to think for the future where you will need a, a fast way to adhere to all these different policies. I'm not an expert on them, but you know, at Skyflow, I can defer to Robin, our, our, our chief privacy officer for, for all of those, all of those questions where, where I have gaps. Um, but this is definitely something that, you know, customers need to think about solving for ahead of time. Yeah. I think that if you're a global company, just think the, 
you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, privacy and security, just even, even in the, you know, the hybrid model, but then you start to factor in things like data residency, other regulatory requirements, but it starts to get, you know, we keep talking complex is the, is the word of the day, but like it starts to get really complicated where you could be having to essentially house customer data in 10 different regions around the world. And then how do you manage that? How do you run global analytics workloads? that sort of stuff. So what are some of the strategies that you're seeing from companies that have been able to do this successfully? Yeah. So, I mean, I think about it in, in kind of three steps, right? Like cast a wide net on what you're trying to solve, right? So, you know, something like I want to secure, and it's going to sound vague, right? Like I want to secure all of my customers' data, no matter where they live, no matter what regulation happens in the future. And I want to do this at scale in a cost-effective way. Right. That there might be a few more checkboxes that I'm missing there, but that that would be a huge feat. Right. So cast a wide net on what you're trying to do um, and then chunk it up and build a phased approach. Right. Your first phase could be vendor selection. Right. Often is. Um, but your first phase of implementation after vendor selection could be getting, you know, data into the platform, ensuring that you can hook it up to one of your big data solutions, like I mentioned, Snowflake or Databricks, and then um, leverage open standards in both that vendor selection and how you go about your implementation. When you're working as a platform team for data analytics, figure out within the organization, within the enterprise, you know, ping the CISO. Hey, you know, I heard Skyfall has this governance solution. What are we doing for governance? You'll probably hear, oh, we've got Okta, we've got Sailpoint, we've got ping. You know, let me connect you with someone to plug into the open standards. A lot of times in um, large enterprises, the organizational drift between who's implementing the project and you know the security world is um, is a bridge that needs to be or a gap that needs to be bridged in order to to be successful here. Um, just one customer example: a recent customer of mine, we were able to accomplish you know the, the casting the wide net and the phase approach, um, and we got them you know live in I think it was twenty six business days, right? And this is a large. Uh, a health tech company that has data in uh, their customers are are global. They had to adhere to a number of, of standards. So our first phase was um, getting all of their data and tokenizing it, um, encrypting it at rest, and also taking in any tokens they had from a previous uh, vendor that they were moving off of, right? So that was the first phase, swap out like for like, make sure that everything works. And then the next phase is going to be expanding into de-identification use cases, right? After X number of years, we don't want that data to be to, to be detokenized, right? So now we've got a security layer on top of a security layer that we're enabling, and that's expected to be done by the end of, of, uh, end of this month, so about a month um, overall. So after that, right, phase three, we're thinking about securing that data as it flows in and out of Snowflake, in and out of Salesforce. Right, solving this and aiming big with a wide net at the data layer foundation allows you to then, you know, check off those boxes in all of your business use cases. Yeah, I think a big part of this is you. I mean, this is true of any company, but especially, I mean, in a large organization where things just like get so complicated, even just from knowing what different teams are doing, like you mentioned, like you know, the idea of like, hey, ping your CISO if you want to find out like what are you doing from a governance standpoint, right? And it's hard, it's easy to not even have awareness of what different teams are doing and how they're solving different problems or what the company standard is if you're in a, a company with you know, 
tens of thousands of people. I mean, when I joined Google, they had 75,000 full-time employees. And when I left, there was 150,000 full-time employees. Like that's a, a lot of people, I mean, to navigate <laughs> and, and a lot of teams, thousands of products to like really understand what's going on. So they need certain processes put in place to, to do that. But from a vendor selection standpoint, I think you need to think be thinking about what is the longevity of this product solution? Like, am I potentially shooting myself in the foot a little bit by doing something where I'm putting sort of a Band-Aid on the problem today that doesn't scale and grow with my business? Or, you know, if you're specifically looking at privacy landscape, doesn't scale and grow with the ever-changing landscape that that is privacy regulations around the world. Totally. And, you know, I'm not someone who's going to say that, you know, you can fully future-proof you know, based on, you know, any kind of RFP criteria or vendor selection process, but you should have that wide net. So, you know, the dimensions across which you should be trying to future proof. Right. So, so to me, it comes down to interoperability with all of the other systems in different teams, because folks on those teams are actually doing the same process where they are trying to future proof their own solutions for their own uh, uh, use cases, right? So as long as you're keeping your house in order and making sure that you're interoperable with the, you know, uh, main, again, CISO organization or other lines of business uh, with which you're exchanging data, um, then you can all kind of, you know, rise up together. This, otherwise you end up in a, a, you know, a project that never starts and never never finishes, right? Because you can't get through the requirements. You you do actually want to start, and that's why you want to front load with a phased approach that gets you, you know, a quick time to value while also having a long tail on the value you can achieve. Hey there, it's Sean, host of Partially Redacted. You probably guessed that since at this point in the interview, you probably recognize my voice. I've been told for years that I have a face for podcasting, but no one has mentioned whether I'm a voice for podcasting, so sorry about that. Hopefully, the awesome guest makes up for it. Anyway, if you're enjoying this episode, please support the show by subscribing and telling your friends. You can also join Partially Adapted Community at skyflow.com slash community. Okay, that's enough for me. Back to the show. So besides some of the challenges just around, like there's a lot of people involved and there could be a lot of products involved, are there other unique challenges that large enterprises face in terms of trying to securely manage like customer and employee data that may not be something that a smaller company faces. Totally, totally. So if you think about like, you know, the the scale of a small business and startup to like a medium tier business to the, you know, Fortune 500 large enterprise, you know, you can kind of filter it through the 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 common like people process technology uh, uh, lens, not to not to show my my consulting experience too much here. Um, but, you know, when you're working with a startup or a small business, you know, the the development team might be the executive team, right? The CTO could be the one working on, you know, their their greenfield application and incorporating, you know, uh, you know, the the APIs needed to secure the customer data, right? As far as process goes, you might have, you know, one customer sign up, you know, ingress point and then maybe one egress point where you're showing the customer data somewhere or doing some some small analytics. And as far as the technology goes, you know, it's nice working with startups because um, oftentimes there's, you know, might not even be a product yet because they're, they're still building and they're thinking about security first. When you move to medium um, sized companies, you, you kind of start to see specialized teams form, 
right? You've got a, a data team or an analytics team. You have a, a team working on front-end applications, maybe even a server-side team, right? And then you, you almost always have a, a security team tasked with making sure that, you know, compliance and controls are, are implemented. Um, as far as like process goes, you might have a couple of applications. You might have a couple of ingress points for customer data. Maybe you've released an app. Maybe you've got also a website. You're, you're growing as a company. And, and as far as technology goes, when you think about the data flow, maybe now you have an ETL pipeline, right? It's probably an ETL pipeline that, you know, looks nice and pretty where you've got some entry points and, and a data warehouse here and then your, your analytics tool here. When you get to large enterprise, all of that gets blown up because a large enterprise was a medium-sized enterprise at some point and was a small business at some other point. And there's no point along which they've, you know, thrown everything out and started over, right? It's not like you get to do a greenfield when you become a large enterprise, whatever the definition of that is. So again, right, with people, you've got semi-autonomous lines of business that can act almost as, as separate companies in and of themselves. You've got that hub and spoke model of security where, you know, organizationally bridging those gaps is, is actually quite difficult. And you've got so many ingress and egress points for that data that it's, it's not uncommon for large enterprises to not know where all of a customer's data is, which, which presents big challenges for, you know, that, that pretty delete me and delete all my info button that some of the regulatory um, bodies now require large enterprises to have. Um, and again, the technology side, each, each tool along the way, your pretty ETL pipeline, it now looks like a tree with multiple, multiple branch nodes. Each, each node is a different vendor's application or custom app that has its own controls, its own way to do this, and, and keeping all of that um, kind of uh, uh, in line so that you're compliant, but not only compliant, you're keeping the trust of your customers is, is very difficult. Yeah, I talked to a business last year uh, based in Europe that they estimated they had 8,000 databases. And uh, so that's, that's just the databases. So it's not even, you know, the log files, backups, all that sort of stuff. I'm not sure if they were including like warehousing in their 8,000 or not, but like, I mean, there's a lot of places to try to keep track of, of customer data. Um, you know, one of the other things you talked about too there that I think is interesting is these companies have gone through presumably like an evolution, like they've gone from small company to, you know, mid-sized enterprise to enterprise company over whatever the lifetime of that company is. And they're kind of, you know, they're taking along a certain amount of like technical debt along that way as well. Just, and they can't essentially just, you know, rip and replace things every time they reach some, you know, new scale goal or something. So they, they basically have to have all that, those systems that they're sort of continually supporting. And that adds to the complexity of, of potentially like, you know, modernizing or um, having to maintain like old systems and old processes. And I think it, a lot of this comes down to being able to do this successfully is around sort of how do you like operationalize all this sort of stuff? Like what sort of checks and balances do you have for launching a new product and so forth? So what are some of the things that you've seen that companies are doing that is, allows them to like effectively manage sort of this, you know, juggernaut in terms of, you know, launching new products or making new investments in technologies in a way that doesn't lead to, you know, a massive data breach. Yeah, I, I think it's um, not simple, but straightforward. If you, at the end of the day, what you're concerned about is a breach of your customer's data, then the straight line to that would be securing your customer's data. Obviously, Sam, right? 
Well, what I mean by that is there are many different ways that you can apply controls on top of controls on top of controls that if you follow all of the breadcrumbs back home, you are securing your customer's data. But something standard like, okay, obviously you want to encrypt all of your customer's data in REST, in transit, secure protocols and things like that. But without sacrificing, um, uh, I'll say business value, for example, right? You know, in the customer service example where you need to prevent fraud by having your frontline customer service folks validate um, social security numbers or addresses or, or you know, any number of, um, of, of factors there. Uh, do you allow your customer service folks to have access to the data for you know, any customer that could call in? On one hand, yes, because any customer could call in. On the other hand, they don't need access to all of that data all the time, right? I think um, so many of the recent breaches are social engineering as their entry point, right? So you social engineer, you may be a frontline customer service worker who's, um, you know, taken some some security training, right? And, and should know what to do, but um, maybe just has access to more than what they should. Um, you know, the, the uh, principle of least privilege is that you only need access to or you should only have access to what you need at the time you need it, right? So I would say protecting um, your data in a way that enables and, and maintains that business value by, follow, by following those principles is one approach you can do. And now there are, are vendors in the space that, that um, by that combination of data security and interoperability are providing that straight line to that security. Yeah, I think a great example of this, and I recommend anybody listening that's interested in this topic is to check out this blog post that Retool put up uh, probably about a month ago now that talks about the data breach that they had. And the attacker used very sophisticated, like a combination of social engineering. They deep faked their audio to sound like an employee. They knew the layout of the actual Retool office, like all this sort of stuff, like uh, exploiting uh, some some issues with uh, Google Authenticator and and the the fact that Retool is moving to Okta. There was so much going on uh, into uh, attacking this company, but ultimately, what ended up happening was um, the sort of scale of what that person was able to get to. They they got into like twenty seven accounts, which is, you know, of course not ideal, but that's a lot better than 27,000 accounts. And the reason they were able to limit the scale of that attack so much was because they combined a lot of these best practices in, in security of like zero trust, uh, principles of least privilege, using uh, like essentially like single tenant environments for all their enterprise accounts. So it wasn't like you compromise one place and you just got access to the, like, you know, the keys of the kingdom or anything like that. They had to essentially break down each wall of every individual account and they didn't get very far. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example, right? I mean, and, and with, you know, generative AI, the social engineering attacks are just going to get more complex. Um, you know, I think if I get a phone call and it sounds like my mom, I'm, you know, and she's in trouble, you know, am I going to ask her to uh, send me a, uh, you know, authenticator code or something yeah, like that? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think the, the human side of this um, is not, is not solvable, nor, nor do I think it necessarily um, should aim to be solved by that means alone, right? Training is great. We should be aware of all of these threats, especially folks who have access to data, but solving the problem as close to the data as possible um, is, I think, has to be the starting point now that, you know, businesses are moving so fast into new industries, right? LLM stuff and generative AI, you know, you can't have a two-year 
project to get into this a space like that or else you're already behind, right? How do you do it securely? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, that was an area that I kind of wanted to touch on. Like, how do you think that the adoption of AI machine learning is going to impact data security and privacy practices in large organizations? And I guess, like, what precautions should companies be, you know, starting to implement when you, you mentioned the fact that, like, someone could potentially deepfake your, your mom's voice or even less sophisticated than that? You know, I think a lot of, like, uh, phishing attacks that happen over email or text message to anybody who's, like, even remotely knowledgeable, a lot of times they're laughable in terms of like the way they're written and stuff like that. But now if you can go to ChatGPT and actually generate something that at least is, you know, written in English and looks like it could potentially be from a friend, then suddenly you're probably going to trick a lot more people. Totally, totally. I mean, you know, gone are the days where you just have to look for typos in the email to, to you know, see if it's a um, a phishing attack or something, right? So, you know, I think when when you think about the um, entry of LLMs, whether it's, you know, public with OpenAI and ChatGPT or even, you know, companies spinning up their own private LLMs, you know, you, you really need a um, firewall uh, uh, type of, of technology between the data that you want to extract analytics from, um, uh, you want to pass through to the LLM and, and the LLM itself, right? Um, and this this says nothing of of intra company um, uh, uh, compliance controls in in the banking and um, investment space. There's some customer data, for example, maybe in commercial real estate line of business that the investment arm of the bank absolutely cannot see. Right. So you know if all of this data is going into the same LLM, that customer data is is being used for training. Um, you can't really guarantee, and in fact, you should expect that those models are are then spitting out, um, you know, results that that could, you know, uh, basically uh, have input from that data. So how can you actually communicate with these LLMs without passing in the fact that my name is Sam, right? Is the fact that my name is Sam important to what I want from the LLM? Or, you know, can you actually leverage, you know, um, technologies like tokenization to um, tokenize on the way out, on the way to the LLM, all the sensitive data whether it's PII, PHI, or even company, you know, trademarks or secrets, um, and, and tokenize that prior to the point that the LLM gets the data, your analytics are still generated and returned to you. And then your your layer in between, your protection layer, detokenizes so that, you know, your customer service, you know, uh, uh, representative or your analytics admin uh, actually sees the data that they want to see with the PII as authorized without having ever sent that data to um, uh, to the LLM. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to the point you were making earlier about a company, you know, migrating their customer data into uh, Snowflake or something like that. And, you know, they're, if they don't essentially connect their, whatever they're using for an identity platform to the roles and permissions within Snowflake, they could potentially be giving all their employees essentially access to like all their customer data, which would ideal, you know, not be ideal. And you have the same essentially situation that's even potentially more complex in the world of LLMs if you're using, you know, company data, proprietary data, internal documents, whatever it is, employee data, customer data, to train your LLMs and perform inference and so forth. Like you need to be thinking through, I said, what is, how do you control who sees what, you know, when and where for all these different systems that you're you're connecting up? Um, and I think the, one of the things that is a little bit different 
in the enterprise too that we haven't really touched on when it comes to you know violations from a compliance standpoint or data breaches just the visibility of these companies too is significantly bigger than you know if you're a smaller smaller company like obviously like a data breach data week is not ideal for anybody but as you're if you're a big publicly traded company you're more of a target and the impact from a customer trust standpoint could be massively uh, you know negative for for your company if you if you don't uh, if you essentially su suffer one of these breaches or something like that you're going to be in the news you're going to be a little embarrassing and you're you're going to lose a lot of customer trust totally and and when you do your retro on that you know was it was there a decision made where you had to choose between you know a business initiative or you know, uh, thoroughly, you know, vetting some, a solution for, you know, more security compliance, right? You know, I'm maybe I'm a little bit idealistic in, in my career, but I've always tried to, you know, recommend to whether it was clients or customers or even colleagues that, you know, why can't we have our cake and eat it too, right? You know, now we have technologies like, you know, format preserving encryption and format preserving tokenization where, um, you know, at the data layer, you can tokenize your data have your applications reading that same data without needing to change those schemas, right? And if you do this, right, you, you, in theory, I wouldn't recommend it, but you wouldn't even have to notify those lines of business um, that anything was changing. Nothing would break. Uh, some processes might break in that the data that would be coming out of the analytics tools would, you know, you know uh, 4,716 is not a valid year, Right. So if you're tokenizing and, and using format preserving uh, encryption on that, you know, you, you would see some skewed data. But um, there are technologies now that allow you to move fast, maintaining your, your competitive edge while also um, increasing security. Yeah, we saw you actually see that in the uh, capital. I believe it was Capital One data breach that happened uh, recently where the, the only fines they actually got was for the data that was uh, st was encrypted and not actually tokenized. So I, I, I think that was a, a relatively small amount of data compared to the amount, like total amount of data that they had. But for some reason, some small subset of their data was only encrypted at rest. And then essentially the encryption keys got compromised as part of that, that breach, which means that they could be decrypted and suddenly that information could be compromised. But everything that had been tokenized was essentially de-identified and couldn't be re-identified. Totally. Right. And, and when you think about, you know, uh, you know, Capital One actually is a good example of, of, you know, they had some protection, right? It could have been so much worse. Right. But when yeah. you think about, you know, starting something like this, uh, not, not necessarily from scratch, but as a large enterprise, you know, can you bring your own keys and tie into the process you already have for key rotation? Right. Um, you know, uh, if you already have tokenization solutions, can you bring your own tokens? Right. Interoperability, I think, um, allows you to draw a line from the controls you already have and are working to that new business initiative, whether it's LLMs or generative AI or anything else, and and map the security into the new world, right? What about so? Like one of the concerns I've I've seen uh, when I've talked to you know different companies, especially large companies at um, at a conference or something like that, is they want to know about performance. So sure, there's all these great, you know, newfangled privacy enhancing technologies that allow me to, you know, sort of have my cake and eat it too. But, you know, what does that do to my system from a performance standpoint? Because presumably, you know, I, I might be serving millions, if not billions of customers. So if I suddenly am adding additional layers of security in there, is it going to be sort of, the, you know, the juice worth the squeeze? Is it going to kill my business because suddenly I'm adding all these layers that really slow down uh, and add, you know, additional latency? 
Yeah, absolutely. Right. Enterprises do not have, um, you know, cannot bear additional uh, uh, latency in between critical processes, sometimes real time processes. When you talk about ETL jobs and batch jobs like that's that's maybe a, a uh, that there are smaller performance requirements there, but even those you don't want to have increased latency. So when you think about adding something like tokenization, where now every time you need the plain text data in an authorized use case in an authorized fashion, um, you need to be able to scale to you know multiple thousands of requests per second. Um, the, the same customer example that I, I mentioned earlier, um, I think we were able to uh, uh, you know get them up upwards of. 10 to 20,000 requests per second, not not per minute or hour, per second, right? So that really uh, helped uh, uh, their workloads um, uh, uh, complete when they needed them to, including their real-time use cases without adding uh, much additional uh, uh, latency at all, right? So I think a, a, a good detokenization, um, you know, now I think with Skyflow, we're, you know, below 10 milliseconds for our um, you know, uh, um, um, beefiest kind of uh, single tenant solution. Um, but you, you really can't sacrifice performance because that's a tax on everything, right? The customer service worker who has someone on the phone, they're waiting for their system to detokenize their now tokenized uh, social security number. The customer might notice that, right? These, these are, um, uh, latency is a hidden tax on, on the entire business, right? And it can lead to a soured customer experience, even if it's um, kind of, you know, behind a daisy chain set of internal processes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things too, is you have to think through, you know, where you actually use this data. Uh, I think like a lot of times because we're used to potentially building systems where we have access to the PII, you know, in a database or something like that, whenever we want, or we can, you know, sort of dec decrypt it, uh, on the fly within, within the server that we're, we're processing it, that we kind of convince ourselves that we need access to the data at any given point. But most of the time when we're talking about like passing data through internal systems, we don't actually access, need access to the PII. You need it at render time, essentially, which is, you know, maybe serving just one user or serving, you know, uh, an analyst in like a reporting scenario through like their Snowflake instance or something like that. So it actually the scope of where you actually need to perform something like a detokenization is relatively small compared to the entire lifecycle of the, the data itself. Totally. Right. And, and there's, you know, in, in large enterprises, the amount of tech debt that is related to, you know, maybe plain text data in a certain internal log, but not many people have access to that log. So it's not going to jump to the top of our priority list. Things like that, um, you know, grow to become, uh, uh, you know, uh, folks might now rely on those logs to troubleshoot things. And now the tech debt has turned into something that is, you know, quote unquote, needed to actually perform work elsewhere. Right. Um, you really need to, again, idealistic Sam here, right? Figure out how to, you know, shift as as left as possible, um, secure your data first in a way, right, that, that allows you to confirm that your core business cases are not impacted, make sure all those stakeholders are brought in, and then and then all of the, the stuff in between, right, you now know that there'll be tokenized stuff in the logs. You'll have to just see who screams, right? Uh, you know, that, that, you know, maybe is not a, a great answer here, but when you want to achieve large scale, um, you know, uh, a change with respect to increased security, um, someone screaming isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, you want to know who is screaming and why and, and, and change course as needed. But in that log example, right, that, that, you know, Sam's mom's name shouldn't have been in that log in the first place, 
right? So that's kind of my, my take on that. <laughs> yeah, one of the, actually one, that reminds me of one of the projects I worked on, or one of the products I worked on at Google, uh, API-based product, and, and people would register essentially like a company bot. And this, the unique identifier for the company bot originally would be the name of the company with some sort of, you know, random string essentially at the end of it. I think even before, originally it was just the company's name as a slug basically, and which would lead to like collisions. And then we had to add some random, you know, string on it. And a big part of that was because when the engineers looked through log files, they needed, a, they wanted a shortcut to be able to identify which company it was associated with. So it wasn't necessarily PII. Eventually we moved away from that to using essentially like a, 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 a like a, a, a non company related identifier that was just like a random uh, value. But uh, it, those are the kinds of things that people end up building is because this is convenient for me in this moment. It could be a lot worse than that where, you know, you're logging something that's like far more, um, you know, potentially risky to your customer or something like that. But these are the conveniences. We think that we need them. And then it's like some system that no one's paying attention to for a decade. And then until someone like figures it out and exploits it in some way, and then it leads to, you know, uh, some nasty press coverage for the company. Totally, totally. Something as small as 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 a naming convention could could make the news. Yeah. So as we start to wrap up, you know, are there you know emerging trends and technologies that you see you know outside of AI having significant impact from you know data security and privacy standpoint for some of these you know large companies in the future. Totally. Yeah. And I'm glad you said outside of AI, because that's that's kind of the easy answer. Yeah, I have to caveat that because like everyone's only ever talking about AI. So Yeah, totally. So, you know, I, I would say um, multi-cloud, actually. So I, you know, I am I am now old enough to have been through a a a physical to virtual server migration where, you know, my my team had a set of servers in a actual room that you would have to go and turn on with a button. Right. And moving those into, I think it was VMware at the time where you had a rack server that had a set of virtual servers there going through those migrations and then moving from, you know, kind of virtual servers, but still on prem into hybrid cloud and having large organizations dip their foot into the cloud. Now, a lot of the companies that have made their way into the cloud and maybe even don't have any more on prem are now thinking about. Uh, cost optimization and, and again, not putting every egg in the same basket. So how do you actually maintain security in a multi-cloud environment, right? Is it um, in the identity world, something like an Okta where your authentication is actually centralized because that is a, a you know, some say the strongest control in terms of the identity um, space in terms of user security. Um, how do you do that with your data, right? So, you know, whether it's AWS S3 or you know Azure's version or GCP's version. Um, what are the controls upon which you need to um, uh, uh, secure your data in a multi-cloud world? Um, uh, and 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 yeah, I think multi-cloud for large enterprise is only now starting to really take steam. But it does seem to be moving in that direction for um, a lot of large enterprises. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad you you've kind of flagged that because. It's something I'm also sort of uh, I feel like has been on my radar more recently as well. And uh, it's something that, you know, if you're a smaller company, it's it's probably unlikely that I mean, you need a very good reason to, to be essentially running workloads on both, you know, AWS and Azure and GCP or something like that. Just because it's just, uh, you know, unnecessary management overhead. Uh, it, it might be premature sort of cost optimization. But if you're a large enterprise, you want to have that negotiation power. 
uh, with those different cloud providers and have them sort of like, hey, like move this workload over here and we'll cut you, you know, it will cut down the price and so forth, uh, as well as, you know, there's certain or protection and, and there's also certain features of the, uh, you know, resources available on different clouds that may be better uh, to run certain types of systems on. Um, so you need to kind of think about, you know, you mentioned identity, like how are we going to manage identity across these? How are we going to manage customer data across these, you know, in a multi-cloud environment? And of course, even, even the hybrid cloud environment as well. So those things are, I think, unique to the large enterprise. Absolutely. Well, Sam, thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed this. I, I think uh, people will will uh, enjoy this as well. And, you know, is there anything else you'd like to, to share or add uh, as we start to, to wrap up? Yeah, yeah. I think if there's if there's one more thing I'd, I'd like to share, perhaps the thing that matters, you know, I won't say the most, but but among, the, you know, the most important is, you know, the, the team and the partners that you actually put together to um, achieve something as great as securing all of your customers' data. It is a lofty goal. That's that's probably the thing that needs to be there more than anything else, right? You you need to have the right vendors that are providing the right support for for what you're doing to secure your company's data. You got to have the right folks within your own uh, team, line of business, your security org, the right stakeholders involved. Um, you need to know as much as possible beforehand which questions to ask, where the band-aids are, right? Where someone's mother's name is in a log file, right? You want to try to get ahead of all of that so you can solve for it or at least prioritize it, right? So that's the, the one thing, last thing I'd probably share is that the, the this is still very much a people problem and, and can be solved by, you know, a team that consists of the right, right people, you know, uh, with a common goal. Yeah, that's well said. And I think that's something that's been, you know, aligned with some, you know, uh, previous conversations that we've had on the podcast is this theme around, you know, privacy and security. It really needs to be part of the culture of a company to do right, because ultimately it does come down to a, a people problem. Like people need to be sort of thinking about this from first principles and also be conscious of it with each thing, you know, whether it's buying a product that they're going to, you know, incorporate as a vendor or whether it's, you know, building and developing new products and they need to collect customer data and thinking about how do I securely handle this? How is my company solving these types of problems? So I think that's a, a really good, great place to, to leave it. And I wanted to thank you again for so much for, for coming on and uh, cheers. Awesome. Thanks, Sean.